We are at the dawn of a new era for humanity, an era of artificial intelligence. Things are changing at a dizzying pace, and Israel must formulate a national policy on this issue. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivered this message in a video his office posted to Twitter on June 5, 2023, following a discussion he had with tech billionaire Elon Musk. According to Israel's longest-serving premier, Musk told him that governments must understand the opportunities and dangers posed by AI technology. The Tesla CEO also said Israel could become an important player in the world of artificial intelligence, something Netanyahu was keen to make a reality. In the coming days, I intend to convene policy teams to discuss a national artificial intelligence policy in both the civilian and the security spheres. Just as we turned Israel into a global cyber power, we will also do so in artificial intelligence. What Netanyahu failed to mention, however, is how this might affect Palestinians, for whom security has often meant repression. The threat posed by one form of AI-driven technology was detailed in a recent report by Amnesty International. This week, how are facial recognition systems being used as tools of apartheid? How does surveillance disrupt Palestinians' lives? And why won't Palestinians give in? I'm Nick McAlpin, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. Hebron, West Bank, an ancient city with deep religious, historic and economic significance, but one that's suffering under the crushing weight of a surveillance-facilitated Israeli occupation. So in Hebron, we've been documenting a slew of facial recognition technologies that have been used over the last few years. Most recently, the Red Wolf system, which is a facial recognition system that's being used uh, at checkpoints uh, to determine whether Palestinians can cross into areas where they can access things such as work, uh, education, access to medical services. This is Matt Mahmoudi, a researcher at Amnesty's tech division and the lead author of its recent report, Automated Apartheid. Following a previous groundbreaking report last year that found Israel to be engaged in the crime of apartheid, Amnesty has now delved into how it is using technology with terrifying consequences. As for Hebron's Red Wolf, like any other system, it can never be guaranteed to work 100% accurately. It also heaps yet more hardship on Palestinians, forced to use already draconian checkpoints for tasks as fundamental as visiting family members, earning a living or accessing services. Uh, when they come up against this system, they no longer have the kind of person-to-person human agency that you might have had previously when engaging with a soldier at the checkpoint. For example, if you happen to know the person and they were just letting you through, they can no longer rely on that kind of marginal lenience because it has to be based on the algorithm being able to pick you up. And if it doesn't, even if the soldier knows you, you can't be sure that you're going to be allowed through. You can't be sure that you're not due to be questioned. You can't be sure that you're not due to be uh, detained. Red Wolf operates in a city where Israel's system of apartheid is perhaps at its starkest. Hebron is split into two parts, H1 and H2. H1 is run by the Palestinian Authority, while H2 is under oppressive Israeli military control. About 800 Israeli settlers live illegally in H2, an area home to around 33,000 Palestinians. 
Redwolf uses cameras at checkpoints to compare faces with a database made up solely of images of Palestinians. Every Palestinian who passes through is under the watchful eyes of the cameras and the system supporting them. If the system decides that, you know, they've, they've for some reason been flagged for detention or for activism or for something that requires follow-up by soldiers, it might give a yellow uh, color code or even a red color code uh, to signify that it should be stopped and interrogated further, or a green uh, color code, which, which effectively signifies that a Palestinian may well pass through the checkpoint. The system will also go red if a Palestinian isn't registered in it. An Israeli soldier will then match their identity card with the picture taken of them when they enter the checkpoint. As Palestinians repeatedly pass through, Red Wolf develops the ability to recognize them. This happens without consent and often even knowledge and all the data is owned and stored by the occupying force. Red Wolf violates the rights to privacy and equality and non-discrimination, Matt says. It also infringes on Palestinians' freedom of movement. It's worth noting that Israeli settlers, who use other roads, are not forced to go through these checkpoints. One of the key tenets of what we understand as a making up a part of the inhuman acts that we see as the international crime of apartheid includes restrictions on freedom of movement. Because the freedom of movement is so fundamental in Palestinians being able to exercise their, their basic uh, rights and services, such as the ability to move in order to access medical services, to access education, to access work, uh, to access family life and, and associational life of any form. Red Wolf isn't the only system Israel uses in Hebron, a so-called smart city whose streets are littered with cameras. There's Wolfpack, a database containing information on Palestinians across the West Bank, as well as Blue Wolf. Israeli soldiers can access and add photos to Blue Wolf through a smartphone app. Amnesty's report said there's a high likelihood of Red Wolf, Blue Wolf and Wolfpack being connected. These systems seem dystopian enough in themselves, but the situation gets darker still when you learn that adding Palestinian faces to Red Wolf and Blue Wolf has been made into something of a game among occupying forces. The way we first saw that play out was in the Blue Wolf system in which uh, soldiers uh, were being incentivized to perform uh, raids in which they went around and captured as many Palestinian faces as possible to curate this bigger database consisting uh, only of Palestinian faces and their information. Subsequently, uh, the military units with the most amount of faces captured would be given uh, rewards such as uh, paid leave. Um, we've heard about gift cards in some instances and various other prizes that might incentivize this behavior. As far as the Red Wolf system is concerned, once again, we know that soldiers are being incentivized to match as many IDs to faces as possible. What that means is that for Palestinians who haven't yet been registered in the Red Wolf system, the task of the operator within the checkpoint is effectively to catch them, hold them within the turnstiles, and then compel the production of an ID that can be matched to the face such that they can be recognized by the system um, in future. By Matt's assessment, Hebron has been used as an experimental lab for the deployment of these technologies. Blue Wolf was initially rolled out in Hebron, but according to Breaking the Silence, a group of former Israeli soldiers that provided testimonies used in Amnesty's report, the system later started to be used elsewhere in the West Bank. This might mean that Red Wolf too begins to pop up in other parts of the occupied Palestinian territory. One area already awash in surveillance is East Jerusalem, where Israel has long sought to force Palestinians out and silence their protests.
Israeli surveillance in East Jerusalem includes the Mabat 2000 system, which covers the well-known Old City. Established at the turn of the century, Mabat 2000 was equipped with facial recognition capabilities between 2017 and 2018, Matt says. In the Old City, Palestinians can hardly step outside their front doors without being caught on camera. In its report, Amnesty found there are between one and two cameras there for every five metres travelled. But other parts of Jerusalem are also heavily surveyed. This includes the Palestinian neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which made international headlines two years ago amid an attempt to forcibly displace families there. What we became particularly concerned with was the ways in which CCTV cameras were popping up in areas that were of particular significance to Palestinian communities, especially following the protests uh, against the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah in 2021. And we started noticing in particular that around Sheikh Jarrah, around Damascus Gate, Al-Aqsa Mosque, and as well as in areas such as Silwan, the uh, increasing presence of CCTV, which against the backdrop of the Mabat 2000 system, uh, makes it increasingly difficult for Palestinians to move in any sort of space uh, without being subject to identification uh, and harassment and potential uh, arrest and detention by Israeli security forces. Palestinian writer and activist Jalal Abu Khater recounts an incident last August when he was being stopped and searched after attending a demonstration at Damascus Gate, a key entrance to the old city. Jalal's story suggests surveillance played a role in him being stopped. When the, the youth who were gathered there started chanting, it didn't last for a few minutes before Israeli forces came in and snatched the guy who was leading the chant in a way to intimidate everyone else into silence. Again, I repeat, this was an environment of like extreme repression. People were getting arrested and facing charges a lot. People were very worried about their well-being. So it took one brave guy to start a chant and others to gather around him chanting against the Israeli onslaught on Gaza. After he was taken away, the protest was sort of uh, dispersed because of this environment of uh, fear that was instilled uh, upon us. But Jalal says that later, when he was walking home, he was stopped by Israeli forces to whom he showed his press card. They didn't say why they had stopped him. They didn't say anything about why they, they stopped me, but they kept explaining that this is protocol, you were suspicious. We received word that you were suspicious and we had to stop you and check you. The, of course, the stop and search lasted, I think, 15 to 20 minutes. Every single part of everything I carried was searched and taken out. I was put in the wall. Uh, I was, in a, I think, in a humiliating position, the, the, the way they searched me. Jalal realised something during the search. He says he was asked three or four times why part of his shirt was ripped. I kept saying that, I don't know, it probably got caught onto something. It did ca- get caught onto something, but the thing it got caught on was a railing during the suppression of the protest. When the Israeli forces came in to grab the guy who was leading the chant, I was pushed around and my shirt got caught on the railings of the steps in Damascus Gate. And I just walked away. And half an hour later, I have this uh, this officer who's, who's stopping me, asking me, why is your shirt tripped? And he repeats his question three times. I don't give an answer, of course, because I don't get why he needs an answer. But I do realize that they want to stick, uh, they, they want to intimidate me, saying, we know where you've been. We know what you've been up to. So how did this arguably harrowing experience make Jalal feel? It made me feel like I belong to, to my people in Jerusalem, to be honest. It's something everyone goes through a lot and, you know, you don't live under occupation and have a good time or have an easy life. 
living under occupation means constant violence, constant harassment uh, by the occupation forces. And it's the reason that keeps us going, is that we are always resisting this harassment and, and, and violence by the state that wishes to dispossess us and, and get us out of Jerusalem by force. Damascus Gate, where Jalal started his story, is a place of importance for Palestinians. They gather there to socialise, sell goods and protest. But the situation there has changed over time. I saw transformations occur in, like, in Occupy East Jerusalem and specifically in the Damascus Gate area, perhaps the year 2014 onwards. The shape and the architecture of the space was changing. There were plans to um, alter the, the nature of the streets, set up barriers on, on the road, um, set up police towers, uh, pol police boxes uh, in the Damascus Gate area and as well as the surveillance cameras which became proliferated in that area specifically and in occupied East Jerusalem generally, in our Jerusalem of course, in Palestinian Jerusalem. 2021 was an important year. It saw Palestinians break past what Jalal calls the barrier of fear, especially in Jerusalem. That year there was a large protest movement in the city, but in 2022, Israel stepped up measures against Palestinians. Jalal says people experienced lengthy interrogations, torture and arrests, and that many were put in jail over social media posts. In 2022, it's not that it died away or people get, got tired, it's that the repression increased so much and it became so ingrained and everyone felt the effect of it. People were fearful for their livelihoods, for their physical well-being, were trying to be smart about it and avoid um, something that could hurt them or their families or uh, you know cause that kind of damage because it's not the cameras per se it's the the system that wants to repress and increase repression of the palestinians from 2021 onwards jalal says there were also many cases of people being arrested over activity recorded on cameras with israeli authorities publishing the footage online the point of the video being released by israeli uh, police is to show that this kid was responsible, for example, for raising a flag uh, in Al-Aqsa or for chanting at Damascus Gate. And they might get arrested, maybe a significant distance away from the point of the first thing they did. And the, the fact that they're releasing those videos was to tell people, to tell the youth mostly, that whatever you do, no matter where you do it, we're going to catch you. Camera infrastructure in Jerusalem, as well as media reports on surveillance, leave one Palestinian interviewed by Amnesty in May 2022 with a similar impression. She said, quote, Every time I see a camera, I feel anxious and I don't like it. Like you're always being treated as if you're a target for something. End quote. Jalal knows anything he does, even something as seemingly insignificant as having a normal conversation, could be monitored and used against him. The cameras are repressive just by the fact they're there because they make people like me and others monitor our behavior, our own behavior, and police our own actions just so that we avoid getting in trouble. But it's not just Israeli authorities giving Palestinians pause. As settlers encroached in and around East Jerusalem's Silwan area, they too installed surveillance infrastructure, says Matt from Amnesty. We've then had uh, testimonies from Palestinians who speak to how they have to now think twice as they you know, go about just visiting a family member, but also as they start thinking about uh, performing resistance and, and protesting the, the increase of surveillance, they're finding themselves in a bit of a catch-22 in which 
they've already been resisting active forms of surveillance that have been uh, implanted by uh, Israeli uh, security forces, but are also having to effectively think twice about how they go about resisting those things because of the increase of surveillance uh, by settler communities as well. Beyond the question of who put a given camera up, just how significant is the potential impact on Palestinians' daily lives? One Muslim woman in East Jerusalem told the Palestinian digital rights group Hemle a couple of years back that she was wearing her hijab or religious headscarf while inside her own home. The hijab is usually only put on in public. She said that she's doing that because the CCTV camera is invading her home, her safe space. This is Mona Steyer. Until recently, Mona was Hemler's advocacy and communication manager. Hemler was part of a committee that was consulted on Amnesty's recent report. We all know that this woman is not asked by religion to put hijab on her head inside her home. But on the longer term, it might be normalized just by habits. People might be used to put hijab inside their homes. And in few years, we might see this as an extremist action, but we won't at that time, in a couple of years, understand the main reason or causes, the root causes for this behaviour or for this extremism. That a camera has had such a profound impact on a woman that she can't even allow herself to unwind at home raises the question of where the device gets its power from. Surveillance systems are not just about cameras and computer programmes, but also the dynamic between those using them and those they use against. Mona made this point in the context of Blue Wolf, the app Israeli soldiers compete to take photos of Palestinians on. First and most important thing is about like the power asymmetry between the occupier and the occupied, like the Israeli occupation and the Palestinians who are occupied. And here we need to think about if Palestinians wanted to confront or wanted to reject being profiled or wanted to reject like this facial recognition technique, are they allowed to do so? They are not because if they if they said that we don't want to be profiled or we don't want you to take a picture of my face to profile me, they might be arrested, they might be interrogated and they might be sentenced or whatever the punishment that they will be exposed to. While there wasn't always as much interest in the surveillance issue as there is now, researchers and others have started to focus more heavily on the topic. In November 2021, it was alleged by Amnesty's security lab and two other groups that an Israeli firm's spyware had been used to hack phones belonging to six Palestinian rights defenders. While Mourner acknowledges Israelis could also fall victim to spyware, she returned to the issue of power. We need to insist on and focus on the power asymmetry and how Palestinians as occupied people cannot really push back on that because what can we do whenever our mobile phone is hacked? We can't do anything. The alleged hacking of the six rights defenders' devices spreads fear and increases self-censorship, Mona says. The other thing, this increases the chilling effect. Amnesty defined the concept of the chilling effect in its automated apartheid report. It said, quote, a chilling effect occurs when the actions of a state cause people to refrain from exercising their human rights for fear of the consequences, end quote. Let's examine another technological front line, the world of social media, where the Israeli government's cyber unit operates. It works to uh, monitor Palestinian content in the online spaces, 
and send requests ongoing like and on a daily basis requests to the social media platforms asking them to take down Palestinian content and according to the Israeli cyber unit the social media platforms are accepting 90% out of those requests and whenever we are looking at uh, certain takedowns because we also document the takedowns on the social media platforms many of them are content takedowns of documentation of a human rights violations that we as Palestinians are exposed to on the ground. For Palestinians who are aware Israeli authorities monitor social media, this might make them think twice about expressing themselves online or reporting abuses to the wider world. This is especially so given the other potential consequences. Here's Jalal again. Social media posts have gotten many people in prison before. Many Palestinians have been uh, charged with incitement, charged with other charges just because of what they say or do on their on their devices. Knowing the risks, some may think twice before posting online about their views on, say, the Israeli occupation and how best to end it, out of fear they could face further restrictions on their liberty. The chilling effect is why the large protest movement in Jerusalem in 2021 was reduced the following year. As Jalal said, people were, quote, fearful for their livelihoods, for their physical well-being, end quote. But chilling as it may be, Israeli surveillance and facial recognition tech won't stop the steadfast nature of Palestinians and their yearning for freedom. They, they wish to control and dominate the Palestinians who live in occupied East Jerusalem. They wish for us to just give up on our identity and just accept the Israeli occupation and accept our slow withering away from the city. That's, that's what they wish for. For us, it doesn't matter. Being Palestinian is, is, is our identity and our, our homes are, are, are like our lives and our lands are important to us, so cameras won't scare us away of that. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written by me, Nick McAlpin, and produced by Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar Al-Fil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.